You know, in celebration of Valentine's Day, Dave, I decided to bake you this cake. Oh, is, is that, that sweet? I yes, it. I hope it will be. That's right. Now the the machine here has helped me bake this, so I don't. I can't really speak to the quality of it. I left them alone for a vast majority of the baking process. So uh, why, why don't you try a piece? It's the smell of burning rubber when I walked in here. Okay, one second. Oh, that's uh, it's it's good. It's delicious. Oh, thanks for the uh, thought. Well, it's a thought that counts. <laughs> Just like this movie, Message in a Bottle. I'm I'm excited. You know, uh, I feel like whatever we've seen so far, the computer has, uh, you know, selected great, great things for us to discuss. How bad could this movie be? Dun dun dun. <laughs> In his own garage, Kyle has built a machine. Cobbled together with parts found in his friend's church basement and a dumpster behind the local Dairy Queen, this monstrosity is now alive and evil. Kyle has convinced his friend Dave to help stop the apocalypse by reviewing films the machine picks. The ultimate purpose is still unknown, and Kyle could have probably done this himself, but he's not being dragged to hell alone. This, this is, is Kyle and Dave, Dave versus, versus the machine. So last week, we were told that we were going to be talking about this movie, Message in a Bottle. Do you know anything about this film? No. I'm uh, hoping that it will be entirely scored by Sting, and that uh, mm -hmm. or Christina Aguilera, I just realized. Um, that's it. I don't know. I've never heard of it just like just like sting's sex life it's just something that goes on and on and on and conceivably for positive purposes but who knows i've never been in sting's bedroom there are things as we were learning in this day and age that uh, some doors you just don't want to open I no he wasn't in the doors <laughs> all right that's my dad joke for this episode dwan, dwan, for dwan. this episode this is valentine's day this is you know the time for romance the time for love is in the air i feel like a romantic film is like the perfect thing to watch I'm glad that your wife has allowed you to be here for the last, you know, 48 hours. I don't know why you just don't unhook your, your chain there. It's not exactly welded to the table. You choose to stay here, Dave. Well, fun fact, I uh, actively am anti-Valentine's Day, uh, much to the uh -huh. chagrin of my beautiful wife. Um, I've spent most of my uh, relationship with her and probably my whole life being one of those uh, assholes who uh, constantly describe it as a commercialized Mm -hmm. you know thing i think my big statement was uh, why should people have to wait for one day in a year to show each other that they love each other and not just show it every day mm. to which my wife replies why don't you just stop talking and we'll go out for dinner yeah <laughs> so i think she's just i waiting. feel though that i like to much in the same way as a protagonist in uh, a fighting anime i need to power up over like 18 episodes before my love just like explodes at the other person. That's pretty more graphic than you probably wanted me to get into. <laughs> I was just going to say, I, I thought at first Dragon Ball and then uh, yeah, I got, I got much more pornographic I get at the end. Of super Saiyan? I have no idea. I can never remember <laughs> what the term is. I mean, to make it sound like I know what I'm talking about when I talk about fighting anime. Well, I recently discovered that Dragon Ball is still going. and uh, Of course it's still going. I saw, I think, I still with the... Uh, Goku with blue hair? Oh, is that yeah. the new addition? Like blue, white, and yellow? I mean, Ash Ketchum just won the Pokemon tournament for the first time in 18 years or something like that. He he has aged really well. Really grow. Yeah. Really good. Yeah. And yeah. Pikachu's doing really, really good. He he looks great. He looks great for 35, whatever they're supposed to be at this point. In, in Pikachu years, he's like 95. So yeah, he's looking great. And as I always underscore, not that I've ever played watched or participate in anything to do with pokemon but, but dot 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 yes um i want to say too you may have noticed that the the machine has actually brought us these new microphones to use today i don't know what happened to the other ones but if uh if the room sounds different it's the machine's fault and not because i forgot to book a room somewhere to record because we only record these here in my house in this beautiful fiction that we've created in your mind i thought it was because the machine 
used different materials in the room to bake said cake. Right. Yes. It does smell like motor oil, though, doesn't it? There's something really disgusting about mm. it, and I'm glad to be Your here. Your teeth are turning black. Well, that's just normal. Oh, okay. Yeah, as all geishas know. Let's go and watch this movie. Let's get our romance on. And uh, when we come back, we'll talk a little bit more about Message in a Bottle. I'm excited. Dear Catherine, forgive me for being so angry when you left. I feel I've been lost. No bearings, no compass. You were my true north. I could always steer for home when you were my home. I still think some mistakes been made. I'm sorry I didn't hold on to you with so much strength that even God couldn't pull you away. Signed all my love, G. He wish it was addressed to dear Teresa. Any girl would want to be loved like that. It's Valentine's Day, which means that love is in the air, or at the very least swarms of nanobots have infiltrated our brains to make us believe in the concept of love. Either way, happy Valentine's Day, everyone. Dave is skirting his duties once again. Apparently he wanted to have a romantic evening with his wife. Uh, so I guess that's what he's doing in this beautiful fiction we've created in this podcast. Uh, Kylie Day versus the Machine is a proud member of the Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATV. The Alberta Podcast Network promotes and supports Alberta-made podcasts and connects their audiences with Alberta-based businesses and organizations. Our first sponsor this week is Park Power. In Alberta, you get to choose who to buy your energy from. If you choose Park Power, your money stays here. Plus, Park Power shares its profits with local not-for-profits that are working to make a difference for their communities. Shopping local is very important to Park Power's owner, Chris Kozowski, and we love local here at the Alberta Podcast Network, so it's a good fit. Learn more at parkpower.ca. The Alberta Podcast Network, powered by ATB, is happy to be partnering with Seat Giant to offer you a deal on tickets to major sporting events, big concerts, popular theater throughout North America, and more. So whether you're at home or on vacation, check Seat Giant for tickets to the hottest events. That might be tickets to a CFL game, Oprah Winfrey, Hamilton when it eventually actually comes to Calgary here. Or maybe you want to go and see the machine's tight five that he's been practicing here for the last few weeks in his quest to be the first robo stand-up comedian. You don't count, Jim Gaffigan. How do you get to Carnegie Hall? Visit SeatGiant.ca to find tickets. You can use the promo code APN at checkout to get 5% off your purchase. You save the tax. You'll save a bit, and the network gets a little cut of that purchase, too. All tickets are in Canadian dollars, even for events that are in the U.S. SeatGiant is Canadian-owned and operated, and it guarantees every ticket. So help yourself to a great experience while helping the Alberta Podcast Network and a Canadian-owned business. Visit SeatGiant.ca and use the offer code APN. Practice. You're not funny. Uh, you know, Dave, I honestly didn't think that a movie could break me. <laughs> and yet here we are, a movie that is maybe destroyed the very soul that i don't believe in but maybe i do now because i feel like less of a human being after having sat through two and a half hours of that movie i i don't i know the machine is about to destroy the world uh but uh fuck you machine come at me bruo Maybe we just talked way too much about mel gibson last episode <laughs> that this is his or theirs, I shouldn't ascribe a gender, their it's, recompense against us. Don't look at me, machine. You I'm know sorry. you deserve this. God damn it. That oh, was... That was awful. It was awful. <laughs> sorry God. to spoil the lead here or bury the lead, but that was it's a bad, bad movie. We just watched a bad movie, Dave. Not just watched it. I mean, two and a half hours, like you're... We'll never get that back. Let me tell you this. This is true fact, true story. Me and Dave, seen here on the couch... And Dave goes like, how much longer do we have? 
and it was an hour and a half is how much longer we had to watch in the movie. And I was like, oh boy, like I'm done now. I don't know how I'm going to get rid of the next 90 minutes. There's this thing called, well, script writing, pacing, cinematography, directing, acting. Those are essential parts of making a film, uh, right. none of which were present uh, in this, uh, would you call it? I don't know. I guess it was a film. It was, it was published. People paid It was money. released, yeah. yes. Other human beings paid money to watch that. I'm sorry for your pride. Well, let, let's do this. Let me just push this button. Uh, all right. Printing out this big, long receipt for me to read through. So message in a bottle. Let's just get this stuff out of the way, and then we'll delve into the, to the why we maybe don't like it very much. Message in a bottle. It was released on February 12th, 1999. Also released that week. Two movies. One, Blast from the Past. Oh, we should have done that one. Starring That's, uh, Brent. Uh, I, we don't have a choice over what movies we get to watch, Dave. George in the Jungle, yes. baby. Blast from the Past, starring Brendan Fraser, Alicia Silverstone, and Christopher Walken. Directed by Hugh Wilson and written by Bill Kelly. But also, My Favorite Martian, starring Christopher Lloyd, Jeff Daniels, and Elizabeth Hurley. Directed by Donald Petrie and written by Sherry Stoner and Deanna Oliver. I... Only remember my favorite Martian because it was advertised seemingly all the time for a couple of weeks. And even at as a 15-year-old, I was like, that looks like a bad movie. Why would anyone go and watch that? <laughs> I have no recollection of my favorite Martian. Um, and uh, joking aside, I'm sure Blast in the Past was a terrible movie as well. Message in the bottle. It is currently rated 6.2 on IMDb, which is much too high in my estimation. I'm actually getting angry right now. Yeah, 39 from Metacritic. It's cooling me 32% on Rotten Tomatoes yeah. from the critics, 66% from the the casuals, the audience. Someone's doing dishes in the in the back room. The, the robot is uh, configuring itself. Message in a Bottle is available on DVD and Blu-ray, and in Canada, you can purchase or rent it on iTunes, YouTube, or Google Play Movies. How is this so accessible, Kyle? <laughs> how, is, how is this movie so accessible, and yet payback you can't get is like payback. you can't even pay somebody to get it? Well, we're besides lucky, the DVD. Yeah, we were lucky that the machine provided us with the visuals, uh, but that is apparently not available on any... On any what? <laughs> uh, that is not available. Holy crap. That's a lot of background. That's not available on any streaming service, I think. Rental, was it? Yeah. No, I can't not even remember. that. Yeah. The movie stars Kevin Costner as Garrett, Robin Wright, she was Robin Wright Penn at the time, as Teresa, and Paul Newman as Dodge. So here are some background information. Let's go with Kevin Costner first. I guess my first question for you, Dave, is... Um, how is Kevin Costner? I don't really understand. How did Kevin Costner... I mean, I think I know why Kevin Costner became so popular. I don't understand his staying power for seemingly like uh, 15 years or so. He seems to be like one of the biggest stars in the world. And I don't know if I necessarily get it. I, I can't explain to you either. Um, I think there's something about staring at a beautiful crafted piece of wood for two hours, right? It's like mm -hmm. going into a gallery and just staring at one sculpture. I mean, there's no denying, I suppose, the height and bone structure mm -hmm. of the man. Um, and I think his, he had a bit of a renaissance recently. Yeah, recently he's come out with a, with a few Yeah, that weren't, things. yeah, and he was a little bit more human in them but uh i would say i think he is one of those actors like he is going to just have that gravitas for a pretentious word to throw at you where you can place him in a scene it's like yeah the chiselness of his face is just like that's enough that's all we need to stand there and be you type of thing let me tell you what was going on in 1999 uh this was definitely at the height of his popularity so in the late 80s he had been in the untouchables bull durham and field of dreams basically back to back to back I so i think like that is why <laughs> i like all three of those movies yeah uh critically claimed box office successes then he directed Dances with Wolves in 1990, which won him the Best Directing Oscar, beating Martin Scorsese for Goodfellas. Crazy. So that's a crazy choice that has stood the test of time, I'm sure. Uh, he would continue being in films that were part of the cultural zeitgeist. So Robin Hood, Prince of Thieves, JFK, The Bodyguard, and Wyatt Earp. Uh, but then this movie, to place this into context, there was two pretty high-profile flops that he was a part of. 
uh, I think back in, in subsequent years. Uh, so the first being Westworld, Westworld, the first being Waterworld, and then The Postman came out right afterwards. I will say, interestingly, Waterworld has developed a bit of a cult following and is now not looked on quite as negatively as it was when it was released. But I certainly remember how people hated that movie when it came out like it was trashed by critics uh made jokes like all the late night hosts were made fun of Waterworld. uh by the way one of those films that was ghostwritten by joss whedon oh well you know what's mm-hmm. interesting i was gonna say for all the flack it got for how much money it cost uh, by the time i watched it and i don't know if i watched it in the theaters um i actually liked it mm-hmm. i mean i didn't like him but it was a fascinating sort of science fiction post-apocalyptic thing. Right. Uh, he had gills, which is fascinating. Uh, a spoiler alert. But now that you say Joss Whedon, I'm like, yeah, I could see that. You can see it. I could see that. Yeah. And, and then going back, uh, you know, Brian Adams, Whitney Houston, he had, the, he had mm-hmm. some good affiliation to some good music. Why Sting was left off this soundtrack. Uh, really bothers yeah me. really when you name it message in a bottle come on right? it's right even just over the credits the end credits has to play this song you would think i mean the way the movie ends i suppose it would be <laughs> jarring so. but okay let's keep going uh the film this film uh came after that and it was kind of a steady decline of his popularity afterwards uh with the occasional film that would bubble up to be like in the moderately to fairly successful so company men jack ryan hidden figures uh younger people who may or may not be listening to this podcast, if you're into superheroes, for being Papa Kent or Pa Kent in Man of Steel. So he was Superman's dad. I had forgotten. Mm -hmm. Go figure. Because you know why? Man of Steel is a garbage movie. (laughs) What happened, DC? Uh, It's such a good opportunity. You can tell that we are not yet in the old, old demographic because he's currently starring in the TV show Yellowstone, which is in its third season, apparently. Is that Cowboy one? Yeah. Yeah. Co-created by the people responsible for Hell or High Water. That's actually pretty a really good show. movie. Uh, he will next be seen in the film Let Him Go, whose description reads, A retired sheriff and his wife, grieving over the death of their son, set out to find their only grandson. You know, just quickly on that, uh, you know, on the question of why uh, with Kevin Costner, which is a dangerous question mm-hmm. in general. But he does also go, I mean, he's not as charismatic or have the acting chops as, like, as a, I mean, I, I use the word acting loosely, but as a John Wayne, but he is a caricature of a cowboy of, right. the, of the stoic, you know, I'm a man and I don't need to talk right. for you to understand that I'm going to kick your ass. You know, that sort of thing. I guess, I guess the thing for me with Kevin Costner is that I would buy that more if there was like ever any change of his facial expression Wait, i find that there's no to... emotion that's coming which is weird for a movie star because they usually need something I, I, I guess i compare him to paul newman who can do that right well, he can just stand there he is that quintessential like oh yeah he's the rugged he can play that old cowboy if you need him to be in that role well isn't that the you know split between paul newman and a steve mcqueen I guess, yeah. Right. That's I mean, true. there's always I guess there's always also the movie star right. and the actor star. Was, yeah, exactly. Right. I mean, Paul Newman's got he's got chops. Mm-hmm. He does everything, but he's he's just a fascinating yeah. human being in general. Right? Well, before we get to him, let's talk about Robin Wright. Like I said, Robin Wright Penn at the time, uh, but for people my age, she'll always be known as Buttercup from The Princess Bride. She is the Princess Bride, uh, one of my favorite films of all time. Uh, that was her second ever film. Fun fact. She looked like a baby in it. Yeah. If you go back now, it's like, you are young in this movie. Uh, But she would go on to be in so many other productions. When she married Sean Penn for a while, she basically appeared in a lot of his films that he was in or that he directed. Like almost every movie he directed, she was in. Uh, A few years before this movie, though, she would have another iconic role as Jenny in Forrest Gump. Uh, but would oh, also right. be in such films as Unbreakable, The Pledge, State of Play, and Moneyball. Then, kind of the big thing that's happened in the last few years is when Netflix jumped into the original content game, she was part of one of the first House of Cards where she portrayed Claire Underwood. Amazing. Opposite Kevin Spacey. She finished off that series when Kevin Spacey was fired for being you know, both an abuser and trying to force himself on young men. Uh, she was also in a superhero film, as is everyone nowadays. Oh, yeah. She was also in the DC Universe, interesting from this movie, movie, right? So oh, Kevin Trent. Costner played Ma Kent, 
Ma Kent. <laughs> that would have been an interesting movie. No, he played Pa Kent. She, portray- she portrayed Antiope in Wonder Woman and will also appear in the sequel that will be out later this year. The Trainer. You will also soon see her in a film she is directing. I believe this is her feature film, directorial debut. She has directed TV episodes. But it's called Land, described as a bereaved woman seeks out a new life off the grid in Wyoming. So Piers looking forward to her beating Martin Scorsese for a directing Oscar just to come full circle. <laughs> what is it about Robin Wright that she's uh, so cold and icily beautiful? Mm-hmm. Like there's something so tortured about I, I, her? I don't disagree with you and that, that I think that is the perception. But anytime I see her on a talk show or something, she does seem like a pretty being. wonderful, open, yeah. great human being. But she does do very well. Like, I am the icy, cold, like, strong woman who I'm not going to take any crap from you. Which is so fascinating that she was married to Sean Penn for so long, in my opinion. Not to cast aspersions. But... Yeah, that becomes a whole other conversation. So let's go to Paul Newman, shall we? He plays Dodge, of course. And um, The Machine has written down, I mean, come on, it's Paul Newman. Their words. Their words. So his first ever movie credit is from 1954 in a film called The Silver Chalice. But he would go on to be in so many other great films. So here is a taste. Cat on a Hot Tin Roof, The Hustler, HUD, Torn Curtain, Cool Hand Luke, Butch Cassidy and the Sundance Kid, The Sting, Slapshot, The Verdict, The Color of Money, which he won an Oscar for, The Hudsucker Proxy, and later Road to Perdition. So that's just just a, a sampling of some of the film's uh, he was a part of. I mean, of course, and this movie too needs to be uttered in the same sense. <laughs> uh, his collaborations with Robert Redford were legendary. He just needed to appear on screen for the gravitas of the situation to be felt, which just makes it. The the machine is uh, with us here too. It says, which just makes it all the more baffling as to why he's in this movie. <laughs> so, uh, again, that is the machine writing this. Um, although he provided the voiceover for a documentary. His last acting credit was in Pixar's Cars as Doc Hudson, which I always like to point out. Interesting that Cars was his last movie, and he's named Dodge in this movie. Mm, Coincidence. Mm. This movie was written by Gerald DePego, based on a novel by Nicholas Sparks. We should have known. I know. Like, as soon as it said based on a Nicholas Sparks novel, I'm like, oh boy, here we go. Uh, Gerald DePego, though, wrote primarily TV movies. Nothing wrong with that. Just stating the truth. His first feature film credit was in 1996 for Phenomenon, the John Travolta starring film, if you remember that one. I think nope. he could like, move things with his mind, if I remember correctly. He would write another film that came out in 1999 called Instinct, starring Anthony Hopkins and Cuba Gooding Jr. And in 2001, he would write the movie Angel Eyes, starring Jennifer Lopez. Nope, got nothing. I know these from the posters. I have not seen, I think, a single one of these movies. But are, is Instinct and Angel Eyes like horror movies? So, mm. like th- Instinct, I believe, is a thriller. Angel yeah. Eyes, I'm not sure. His last credit currently is the movie Words and Pictures, which starred Clive Olin and Juliette Binoche, which came out in 2013. It was directed by Luis Mendoki. I'm probably really butchering that last name. He is Italian. He started his career in Italy in 1980, but would make the jump over to America to make English films by the late 1980s. The other high-profile-ish films that came up before this were Born Yesterday, a comedy with John Goodman, Melanie Griffith, and Don Johnson, as well as When a Man Loves a Woman, which starred Andy Garcia and Meg Ryan. Then there are these like huge, large gaps in his career uh, but he was the one who directed Angel Eyes. So him and the writer kind of collaborated again. Uh, currently, there are two films he's directing that are in pre-production. But the first that is likely to come out is Banking on Mr. Toad, a biopic about the writer Kenneth Graham, the birth of his iconic story, The Wind in the Willows, and his life with wife, Elspeth, and Alistair, their troubled young son. One so. of the things that I've learned particularly in iTunes, that when the synopsis of a film requires you to click more, right? Yeah, that's yeah. usually a sign that film is not going to be particularly good. Something that was pointed out to me that I didn't even realize that I do, but because of the community I'm a part of, uh, being a bisexual male, I always jump to a person's personal life section to see if they're gay or not. <laughs> just to see, just because I'm always curious. I'm, I wonder, no, is oh. Tom Hanks? No. Well, so he says. We'll see. So yeah. he says. As Hollywood becomes to unravel. 
The budget for this film was somehow $80 million. What the fuck? Which in today's dollars is $123 million for this movie. How? I don't know how. Literally how? do not know how. how. I mean, Kevin Costner must have asked for a lot of money for this film. Yeah, apparently. there's some laundering there. That doesn't make any sense. Um, it's opening weekend. It made $17 million. Domestically, 53 Internationally, it made another 66 giving it a total of $119 million, which is $183 million, our money conversion. However you want to say that, not awkwardly like I just did. I, I, just, I just feel ill. Well, I mean, the thing about it, though, that would be... Hmm, that would not have been considered a success because if it was budget was $80 million, Usually, again, they, even back then, about half of the budget is what they spent on marketing, so 120. So it made 119, so just under 120. So it may have broken even at the best, <laughs> at the best of times. So this was not like a runaway hit by any stretch of the imagination. With all that being said, yes, David, yes, why do you not like this movie? Um, you know, uh, because it exists. I feel like uh, <laughs> okay, sure, yeah. Right. I don't know. It's it was plotting didn't make any sense. I didn't. I just wasn't engaged in anybody in it. Kevin Costner's. I'm struggling to even remember from the opening sequence of this elaborate and weird meeting in the airport with her and a child who doesn't mm -hmm. figure in the movie at all, with this man and this woman. I think there's a presumption that this is the woman that the man was cheating on. It doesn't matter. And then what was it? She's on this like. Beach house and yeah, I mean, the so really break it tells down. her to like go here, sex with a skinny dude because he uh, might have a long yeah. penis. Like it's just a strange. <laughs> wow. Okay. Yeah. I mean, the the basics just as applies. Yes. So we start off. We start off with meeting Robin Wright and her character Teresa, dropping off her son to be with her ex husband by the by what it looks like. Then she decides to go on this vacation, finds this message in a bottle which piques her interest because she's a journalist, in quotes, a journalist, and then gets obsessed by it, wants to write a story. Things happen in the plot, discovers who the guy is, goes down there, does not reveal this information, and then develops a relationship with him. Right. It's supposed to be romantic, I guess, although it's based on lies anyways. Here's the thing. This, this whole trope of like keeping something from somebody, falling in love, and then that being revealed, causing tension in a relationship, this is by no means... Am I a new, bet? Am I right. a fucking bet? Yeah, right, I mean, right. yeah, we've I mean, been we've, there. We've, we've been here. seen it in, in films we've already talked about here yeah. in 1999. Yeah, we've been here. But it just seems so, unlike those ones, literally she just had to introduce herself. Hi, my name is Teresa. I'm writing a story on you. Can I ask more questions? Because she's writing a story on him. Could have still I don't get love. her like subterfuge. Why is she hiding all this information from him she's like when it makes no sense to hide all that information from him? She's like the original catfish. It, it's just a weird thing for her to walk in. And there's that scene where she's going to take uh, a large sum of the newspaper's money based on a credit because of her personal relationship with her weird boss, which is never explained entirely, other right. than he's clearly obsessed with her sexually. And um, she shows up at this thing. She's creeping into people's houses. Yeah, she's like doing this like investigative journalism, but that's not her beat. Like that's no. not even what she's supposed to be doing. No. And that's the thing that we mentioned is like, okay, the newspaper is paying obviously for all this research. Th I mean, that's fine, but it's like, She's going on these like expensive dates with him, wasting time. Probably, like the newspaper's probably paying for her hotel room to be there for like ten days. That's right. That looked like but a again, pretty nice hotel room. She is there to write a story. She is there to write a story on him, the relationship with his wife, obviously that he was writing these notes to, and this message is in a bottle, and then telling the story of where he is now. So I don't, again, do not get why we're not seeing her try to do that at all or at least have some throwaway like throwaway line about why she isn't doing that and that's the thing like i, I mean outside of our uh, trying to stay on the uh, professionalism and ethics thing i mean if you're gonna do this subterfuge at least have a lead in where you know there, there's a there's a little bit of a hint that her husband showing up at the airport with uh, the apparently younger and gorgeous woman um you know there's a little bit of visual tension there but you know maybe make it about you know her having been like you could build a small background story where she has that anxiety of uh it's you know not 
not having to be herself and acting a part, but they don't do that. She no. just walks up and I, I and she's cold. I mean, you don't even feel empathy for her. She's she's Robin Wright. Not to well, I mean, I, yeah, stupid. I guess there's there's very little I understand about what her motivation is through the entirety of this movie. I think that the movie is hinging and hoping that the mystery, I'm using air quotes, the mystery is going to be enough to pull us through. The mystery being like, what was the relationship with this man and his former wife? Why are they not together anymore? What actually happened to her? Because I think it's supposed to be set up, oh, he might have killed his wife. I think is what we're supposed to be led to believe. And there's things that are revealed over time. And then the real story comes out, which is, yes, tragic and stuff. Presumably. So, I mean, honestly, for the majority of this film, I was actually... I felt kind of bad for the Kevin Costner character more than anything, just because like he's being lied to. People are prying into his life when he isn't asking for that. Like he literally just wants to live his life, making his little boats and stuff like that. His dad, apparently played by Paul Newman, knows better and is trying not to be an alcoholic by drinking only two beers a day. Very progressive back in 1999, I'm sure. Um, but I think what you started off with is like none of it really makes any sense and we're trying to cobble this together. I think the much more egregious sin that this movie gets to, and so, I, so I'm going to apologize, spoiler alert for a 21-year-old film. The way this movie ends is the epitome of bullshit writing. And I think what Nicholas Sparks gets criticized a lot for his writing being these, this treacly, like unearned tearjerker of a plot point where the Kevin Costner character just randomly decides to jump off a boat to save this this family and then he dies. Why? Yeah. Like, why is that even in this movie? There's I mean, no lead up to that. Even, There's nothing even for him to even show him to be a person that saves people. Even preceding that, Robin Wright appearing at the uh, christening of the boat that he has made in the honor of his ex-wife to reconcile with her. I mean, th that part is uh, fucking ridiculous in general. And then she chickening out I guess because the name of the ex-wife is on the boat. Who cares? And then she leaves. He tries to talk to her. He doesn't chase after her like the knight in shining armor. Um, Paul Newman, God bless his soul. Uh, he, tries. he tries. I will say, there's the some of the reviews I read about this movie beforehand all point out, like, you know, Paul Newman is pretty good in every scene he's in, which I don't disagree with, but he is so... Well, there's terribly, nothing for him to work with. Yeah, there's it's nothing a, for him to work with here. It's basically just... Be as gravelly voice as you can and be an old man. Well, the, you know what I liked about him? And this is why he's an actor is you get the shit script. If you're a human being and if, if this is not one of those movies where they were writing it as they were building it, which is also a possibility. Mm -hmm. But um, if this is actually a complete script and I'm Paul Newman and I read this, A, I don't know why I agree to do it. And B, I wonder like, okay, I've got six lines they don't make any sense. The relationship between the father and son are shit. And somehow he has scenes where he looks happy. There's a part where he's tearing up. There's parts where he's, uh, you can feel this connection with his son is so aggravated, like uh, just because he's on the screen. You it's know great. what? I, I have a little pet theory. There's a hat that he wears the entire movie. I am like 99% sure he was just like showed up like, I'm wearing this hat for the movie. It's Paul Newman. Yeah. <laughs> because you know what? I'm going to wear this hat because I want to. Actually, now you brought that up. I wonder if everything was ad lib for him and he just went off script because he was like, this is garbage. <laughs> this is what I think he should say. I was in the motherfucking sting. Okay. <laughs> I'm not going to read this. <laughs> uh, now we're just being spiteful, but uh, I know. But I, I think that's the, the central crux of this is like, yes, this is supposed to be this romantic film and we're supposed to be swept up by like, the romance, and I don't feel any romance. I feel people being lied to, and I don't feel that there's really that much chemistry between Kevin Costner and Robin Wright. There was none. Um, and your very nice wife did watch this with her. She came over, even though you haven't seen her in 48 hours. And uh, I liked what she brought up in that <laughs> she thinks that Robin Wright is kind of a terrible mother, as portrayed in this film. Yep. Which I can't disagree with. She has met this man once, has slept with him. No, no, spooned with him like three Sorry, that's times. right. That's right. Sorry. Does not have sex with him. So met him once, had a couple dates over this like 10 days of investigation. Yeah. Invites him to come up to New York and meet her son right away, which is like right there. It's like red flag, red flag. What There's is going, going on? on there? Yeah. Yeah. And then uh, arranges for him to go to uh, a sleepover so that she can finally get... Boned down. Yeah, get to the next level. I mean, there are... 
There's a scene where the kid goes off in a taxi or someone picks him up. And then literally Kevin Country like bolts into the house because we know what's about to happen. It's the strangest thing. I, I, even, I, I think I was more offensive before that, that they would, what was it? Uh, I can't remember if it was in the house or in the hotel, but you know, they're doing shirtless spooning. There's a spooning scene uh, on a beach. I'm pretty sure. And you just hate spoons. Actually, I love spooning. No, but it's like <laughs> you're just sitting there like, what is going on? They're not getting into it. So are we supposed to imply yeah, why, that? Like, why are they being so chaste? I mean, I guess we're supposed to still feel like he's feeling yeah, guilty because of his ex-wife, or his dead wife. But uh, they haven't brought that but up. I, like, I don't know. It just seems so odd and weird. It's and slow. if it's it was so going to be slow. this thing about like past sins that we're trying to keep hidden... Like, I could see that being an interesting movie, but because we don't really know what they're keeping hidden, it's just frustrating. As, you know, I, and this may be a directing thing, but if, yeah, if you're going to go that way and, and your intent, for whatever reason, is that he has to die this idiotic, tragic death. But then if the implication is that there's a parallel to mm -hmm. his wife, then yeah, throw in some fucking flashback montage or something. Yeah. You know, give us something. Uh, I want to see him boxing with a side of beef being over his dead <laughs> wife. And go from there. The, the intense hatred of the wife's family that pops up mm -hmm. in the, presumably in the middle. It might have been in the first 30 minutes, but it felt like an hour. Well, that's the thing, though. It's like there's all these things and elements they add in, which, like, there's more that needs to be explained to me as an audience member. There's one thing, like, we, we mentioned before how we enjoyed how in She's All That, Karen Culkin is wearing, like, those hearing implants. But that doesn't become important to the plot. So it's an interesting character choice and it adds into, I think, the fiction of the film because it doesn't need to be commented on. It's just a reality. Right. And this, it is actually important to the plot. We're not given the information and it never is really explained. No. So then, like, why are we doing this? Why are we wasting our time? I mean, there's that fascinating moment where uh, after he has delivered the symbolic painting to the uh, right. panicked, hiding mother, then the brother shows up in this very strange scene and silently, silently decides, nods and starts sanding something. Yeah. They start uh, lathing the, a boat. The mother's almost like scared that Kevin Costa is going to beat her up or something like yeah. that is another thing. Yeah. Like, okay, I guess. Why don't we play on that? If you're a director, <laughs> maybe I've beat watched, her up a bit. Kevin. Well, yeah. Maybe, I'm, you know, I just watched uh, on personal note, like some Agatha, I've read the uh, Agatha Christie. You know, when you want something edgy, then just put it in. But they were chickening out until the end. And then he has that one little memory thing with his wife on a beach right. and caring. And it doesn't explain anything because there's even the tension where the other, the family and his family have two different versions of how she died. Well, that's the thing. Like this is the, uh, this is the level of screenwriting that we have going on here. And this is probably from the book. I'm guessing, I guess I don't know, but I'm guessing it's right from the book where it's like, it's called the illness. Right. Like, we don't even really figure out what it is that she was sick with. No. So the illness took her. Yeah. <laughs> Which is again pretty unsatisfying. Super weird. It's like, well, you know, plot device. And then that was the explanation <laughs> so that we can move on to the next scene. Here's what I want to ask you. This is kind of where I wanted to go, what I was thinking about, because the movie itself I don't think is very interesting. I think there's a reason why this has been lost to time. I do not feel like this is a movie that needs to be ever revisited be, ever yeah. again. Yeah. I want to talk about romance. If you cast your mind back, pretend that you are whatever age you were in 1999. I'm, I'm assuming 45. So whatever <laughs> age you were at in 1999, what did you think romance was going to be? Well, uh, Romeo and Juliet had come out what, the year before or something. I mean, I mean that's a tragedy, obviously. But I think, what am I? Uh, 20, I'm 21. So... I think the you're 21 now or you're no, I guess the uh, concept of 20 of uh, a 21 year old at least me I'm definitely probably not a representative of the average uh, person because uh, yeah um, <clears throat> is uh, you know still tainted uh, bitterly by this idea of um, soulmates finding someone having this cherished cherished um, chemistry. And then whether it becomes a, a narrative of beating all odds, like the Romeo and Juliet thing, where you're placed in opposite ends of the corner, or you know together having to overcome something, um, but there always has to be this thing where you have to overcome and you come together. There has to be some sort of tension there, and in the end, you know, there's got to be 
some making out and some cheesy music. Yeah. So like me being the teenager, I would have been 15 at this point. I mean, the hormones are raging at this at this point in my life, of course. But because of the steady diet that I had of like Hollywood and and other media that I was consuming, there there was kind of the same thing that there was, you would just know it would be this moment, you know, the fireworks would go off, that sort of thing. And to be perfectly honest, I don't think if anyone actually sat me down, like this is actually what love is that I wouldn't necessarily even believe them or would have even understood what they meant necessarily. Also being kind of a closeted guy, it was like, I was terrified of that. There was all these other issues that were going on in my head. Now he has his own issues I've from, from critics, but being the fan of John Green that I am, who also writes young adult fiction, uh, he has a quote that I believe appears in uh, the fault in our stars, which is that, Love is something, I'm going to butcher this quote, by the way. So he writes that love is like sleep, where it doesn't happen and then it happens all at once. And I kind of agree with that to a point where it's not something that's like, oh, I'm now in love with you and I'm going to be your soulmate and we're going to have this happy life together. It's kind of this gradual thing and then you're in it. Like, yes, I now have these feelings. They're very intense for you. But it wasn't like I didn't and now I do. It was like that gradual thing. And then you realize, oh yeah, no, I do. Like, <laughs> this is something that I very much want to continue on. Uh, but I, I mean, that's the thing. Even if I had read that, even if that that novel come out and I had read it as a teenager, I would have been like, I don't really understand what that means. Oh, could you? We don't and have so enough this yeah. skewed vision of what love is and probably why I had such terrible relationships in university and onwards. Well, I, you know, as a final thought to that, I, I think the other thing that was happening for me at that era was uh, a lot of influx of foreign films and, you know, Japanese manga, and I was reading, you know, this, that, and the other thing. So I was so you getting. Thought you had to go and fight somebody off. Well, that there's always a, a fighting aspect, uh, which is cool. But uh, also, there are little small trickles of other cultural, uh, other cultural ideas of what romance is. And so, like your quote, um, that love is not kind of like the white wedding it's not this end thing where all of a sudden your life is like perfect mm -hmm. but rather that it's through this whether it's suffering or or a trial or um you know two people that actually dislike each other and, and through this ordeal they they come to find whatever it is you know you complete me and all that kind of crap right when's that movie is that before um tom cruise you complete me? No. Oh, that would have been before this. Right. A couple years before this. So there's that, right? The antagonism of two well, people. I think that's also the danger that Hollywood has, has brought us. Is like, actually what love is, is you hate each other and then you love each other. I'm not saying that it hasn't happened in the history of the world, wow. but boy, is that a, kind of a bad thing to let set people up into. Of well, like it's supposed to be very antagonistic at the beginning. I think around this time, maybe, and I could be wrong about the timing, but uh, I had heard somebody state uh, some study that and this could be propaganda but <laughs> that um arranged marriages in um, i think it was india uh might have been china but arranged marriages were infinitely more like they had a, almost a zero divorce rate now th there are cultural factors mm -hmm, there mm -hmm. where whether divorce is looked uh, you know upon uh, fairly or not but uh, i remember watching that and there was an interview with uh, couples and they were talking about how in their culture, the idea of the arranged ma marriage was opposite to the Hollywood romantic marriage. It wasn't that the marriage was about, you know, oh, like, yeah, we look so deeply into each other's eyes and now we have to spend the rest of eternity together. It was more like, well, you know, here we are in the same house. How are we going to make this work? You know, if there's a, an honest insight and the people are reasonably ethically sane, then it's, okay, well, this is where I'm good at. This is where I'm good at. And then as they grow older, they begin to work together and then love can exist. That's a very idealistic and pretty version in that documentary yeah. that I watched. But, but I um, think it is that open communication. Yes. Like a true relationship cannot work if you are not talking with each other. Yes. Um, which is, you know, usually when, when any type of relationship, whether it's romantic or not, starts to crumble. It's like if you're not talking and like this is affecting me or I don't like this or I do love this and you're not having that back and forth, then yeah, it just, it all kind of crumples. I mean, just to bring up my wife again, that's what Helen and I used to say. Anytime people used to ask us about our relationship, we just, we'd sometimes just quit, like we make sure we never go to sleep angry, which is actually hard sometimes, oh, right? Yeah, yeah. Uh, not, not hard, it's a little overblown, but you know, things happen day to day 
But if they you don't, ate that last piece of cheesecake when I told them I was going to eat it. Hey, sometimes it can be something like that, right? Mm-hmm. Um, but if you go to sleep on that stuff or you think that you have to ignore it or absorb it, then those things build up. So yeah, the narrative of romance, the actual experiencing of it, when I'm 22, it's one thing. Now that I'm 41, it's a totally yeah. different thing. Well, I, I mean, know. this also goes into my uh, whole outlook on how Romeo and Juliet mm. is actually a terrible love story when you cast 20 or 30-year-olds in the role, which they most often do. But when it's actually portrayed by a 13 and 14-year-old, then it actually makes sense because they're impetuous and don't really know what love is. Although you wouldn't get that in America because of the implications of, uh, yeah. Age of consent and all that kind of stuff. Implications, yeah. <laughs> well, I mean, the the robot now has said that we have talked long enough. Uh, I'm surprised he let us go on this long talking about message in a bottle. This is how you know the robot plans to destroy the world. Yeah, I I don't think he may be as. He's um, conniving. He is conniving. That is a great word. He is not this like. He's not this ambivalent machine over here. He is. He's forcing us. He is testing us. So hopefully we've made him happy and we can we can go on with our lives. Here's some trivia. He's printing off some trivia here for us. And then we can leave. <laughs> this is the first adaptation of a Nicholas Sparks novel. You you are on record though as saying that you do not like the notebook, the other big adaptation oh, uh, of his work. I mean, how much time do you have? I I will say this. Uh so I avoided the notebook. Um Principally because, like, uh, clearly that's not a movie that I would want to go see um, by interest. And then over the years, uh, Helen kept talking about how uh, she loved this movie. And I kept uh, making fun of her because I'm an asshole. And then um, over the softening of time, I agreed a few years ago anyways to uh, sit through a screening of it on our television. And uh, without knowing anything about it. And I think it was about a quarter way through, I turned to her and I said, this is written by a man. And she goes, what are you talking about? This is a movie written by a man that's uh, just desperate for attention and it's fucking awful. But I will see it through it to the end because, uh, you know, I've agreed to it. And we got to the end. I mean, this, again, stoic man doesn't have to do anything. Historical woman. I, I mean, tragedy is it's such a, it's the same. It's the same fucking story. Um, and then when the credits rolled up, uh, and it said, I don't know if it was written by or, you know, based on a book. Based by, on, yeah. yeah. I was like, how did you know? And I was like, you know, there's a tone, at least of that era. I, I'm sure as we get older, it's going to change. But uh, Nicholas Sparks, I will, I mean, I hate how personal this is, but uh, I will never read any of your work. Yeah. I mean, when I worked at a bookstore, we we looked down on his writing too. So, I mean, the pretentiousness will will feed us for, for decades Maybe to this come. is why we're being trialed, just because we are too judgy, maybe. Yeah. Um, a bunch of money was added to the budget because, or maybe this is why it got, got a balloon, but a bunch of money was added into the budget because of the house they filmed in. They needed to add a fireplace and added the addition to the house where all the artwork from the wife was, was kept. Uh, so this was a real house they shot in, but they had to do all these different additions. And after it, the house owner, the homeowner said, no, put it all, put it all back. I like it the way it was before. So they had to come and un- take out the fireplace, replaster over it, take off the adi- addition. So uh, yes, it cost them as much to undo it the, as it did to to do it. Just a quick note on that and my suspicion of money laundering in the general mm-hmm. Hollywood business is that having worked in insurance and uh, you know appraised and worked through damages and repairs of homes, especially in the United States, even if they tore that goddamn house down mm-hmm. and rebuilt it, tore it down and rebuilt it again, it would have been in the hundreds of thousands of dollars, mm-hmm. not in 80 million. So uh, this idea of a budget, yeah, 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 that's true. it's insane. It's like, yeah, I think I someone's re- lining pockets. I really want to know where that 80 million dollars Maybe it's the went. yacht. Maybe they sank a yacht. Maybe right? they, maybe they maybe bought the first that whole town. Maybe when they christened it, it kept breaking the bow. That's the right. They, 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 they went through <laughs> 17 flights of champagne. <laughs> 80 million uh, there is a bar fight you might remember this scene where there's a small little bar fight yes. between kevin costner and we soon find out his uh, uh brother-in-law chet is that right i think it was chet yeah cheddar checks who cares um it was either a cereal or a chip brand who knows you can actually see in that scene kevin costner has a bleeding lip that's real blood that we're seeing in the film this happened when an extra accidentally he says accidentally punched him right in the face method didn't didn't pull his punch 
But uh, credit to Kevin Costner, who sounds actually like a pretty decent guy, to be honest with people that have talked about him. Uh, but Costner thought it added to the scene, so they kept it in. You can see him get punched in the face and his the blood coming out afterwards. This is the thing uh, that I am becoming sensitive as we do these, uh, as we meet Kyle's, uh, these appraisals of movies and people's work in them. Uh, I don't want them necessarily to reflect my judgment mm -hmm. of them as human beings. Some of them turn out to be quite insane but uh for example uh keanu reeves i went on a boycott of him for a little while for this reason that i thought he mm -hmm. had uh, no acting i'm not sure if i disagree with that either now but as it turns out he's like at least uh, in the public eye the nicest human being ever created uh, so um god's gift to everyone yeah and he's his uh cameo on the amy wong thing is quite hilarious but yeah um always be my maybe yeah yeah it's so self-aware it's amazing well um i think that's it that's gonna wrap it up here this is a podcast called kyle and dave versus the machine so you can actually if you agree with this disagree with this you can send this email at kyle and dave versus the machine at gmail.com and um yeah, if you can, leave us a review on the old iTunes store if you are an Apple person. And if you're not, find someone who's an Apple person and force them to do it because it actually makes us track higher. Well, I am scared, Dave, to see what we are going to be burdened with next as we barrel through 1999 here. Oh, my gosh. What? Oh, we got a good one. We what? finally got a good one. We get to watch Office Space. Sweet. Sweet. All right. Sweet. Well... The the nadir of depression that we had to sit through here on this, our St. Valentine's Day of 2020, is going to get rectified next week when we get to watch Office Space. It's great. I, I was just planning to lay down for a week in my bedroom with the shutters closed, just contemplate the end of the world. But Office Space is pretty exciting. It's a classic. Classic. Do it. Also, if you just... You can take that cake to go. I don't, uh, not really eating sugar anymore. No, so you know, just... I, uh, I, I'm, I'm just, I'm just full up. My, I got a little bit of a wrist crimp, so I, uh, I think He's I'll just gonna get mad. They baked it, so I mean, my hands are, my hands are clean in this case because I did not do any work. Therefore, they're clean. For the sake of the world, I will carry this out and not find the nearest garbage can to drop it in. Weirdly enough, where I put my copy of Message in a Bottle. <laughs>